Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts of the show. Co-hosting with me are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey guys. Good morning. Great to co-host with you guys. Love to co-host with you guys. Evan, who is on the show this week? Uh, my guest this week was Clint Smith. Clint is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's an essayist and journalist. He's also a poet. And last year, he published this narrative nonfiction book called How the Word is Past, for which he traveled to different landmarks and uh, locations around the U.S. and abroad to look at kind of how we as a society publicly remember and memorialize slavery or fail to memorialize slavery in some cases. That book won a bunch of awards last year as a New York Times bestseller. And then for the most recent cover of The Atlantic, he sort of did the same thing in Germany where he traveled to Germany to examine how the Holocaust is memorialized there it was kind of like an extension of his book almost. So we talked about all of that, and we talked a bit about his soccer writing, which I'm also a very big fan of. You could like put the World Cup on, mute, listen to this podcast. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> Chances are that uh, Aaron has the World Cup on mute right now. Uh, we make this show with our friends at Vox. Thanks to them. Uh, now here's Evan with Clint Smith. Clint, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Long-time fan, first-time caller, as they say. Hey, I am a long-time fan of your work. It's really great to have you on. And you have this uh, this cover story in The Atlantic right now, which I'm very interested to talk about, but I want to take a very long way around to it. So I want to go all the way back. You're from New Orleans. New Orleans comes up in your work a good bit. And I want to find out a little bit about how you ended up in this spot, almost like how you ended up traveling to Germany to write a cover story for the Atlantic, how we get from here to there. And I wanted to sort of start a little bit, just having you tell us a little bit about how it shaped you, New Orleans, but also you obviously have a love of language. You're a poet as well. Where did your love of language sort of start? Did it start at home? Did it start in school? Do you remember? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's so many different, versions and iterations of these, this story. Um, so yeah, born and raised in New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina was my senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a moment for me. So I evacuated from New Orleans. My home was, you know, under 10 feet of water, like 80% of New Orleans was. I finished high school in Houston, Texas. And that was a moment, you know, I think so many people from New Orleans, their lives are demarcated 
by like before Katrina and after after Katrina. And that's very much the case for me. And now, you know, I'm 34 years old now. And so it's, you know, and Katrina was 17 years ago. So I'm at this interesting point where it was half a lifetime ago for me. So it very much is the thing that bifurcates my life. Wow. And it was, I think, the experience of Katrina that gave me a, a, a more acute sense of the ways that inequality manifested itself here in the United States even when I didn't have like the sociological or socio-historical language for it as a 17 year old, you know, I remember looking at images the same way everybody else did, you know, from a couch in Houston, Texas, watching CNN and seeing all these black folks on top of roofs in the Superdome in the convention center. And just knowing that this would have never happened in, if these folks were affluent white people. Mm -hmm. When I look at Katrina, I see this moment in time that I've been chasing for half of my life in, in the sense that I've, I think I've been looking for the language to describe how Katrina impacted my life for 17 years now. And I think that writing had, was one of the ways that I tried to process what that experience was. And this is not, not a sort of public facing writing, but writing just for myself. Um, I wouldn't even call I, I didn't necessarily think that it's journaling or a, or a diary, but it was a tool that I had to to try to make sense of what I was experiencing, what it meant to be so jarringly uh, stripped away from the only home that I had ever had ever known, and to so to think about it both on a interpersonal level, like how it impacted me and my family and my friends, and then on a sort of like larger social level, thinking about well, what does it mean for the country I live in, the society I live in. And so I think I was doing a lot of writing, you know, my senior year of high school and my uh, freshman year of college, trying to make sense of Katrina in, in the process. I think I learned that writing for me is not only the creation of art, but also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking. Hmm. I got that sort of clarity after Katrina, but, uh, but I've, I mean, I've loved reading. I love literature and books my whole life. I never imagined a life as a writer. I mean, I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. Between age five and 18, like, it is hard to overstate the the extent to which, like, my life was singularly dedicated to trying to be like Thierry Henry. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was everything. Everything in my life was animated by the fact that I was like, I'm going to be a professional soccer player. So everything I do in my life has to be oriented around that singular goal. Um, and then you grow up and and I was good in high school. I was good. Like I was good. I was on all state, all Metro, all city. Like I was, you know, ODP teams. Like I was, you know, we won state championships. I was being recruited by some different schools. And then you grow up and I got a, ended up getting a scholarship to Davidson college in North Carolina. And I got there and I didn't play a lot. It was this strange moment where I had like an 18 year old existential crisis where I realized that the thing that had defined me my entire life, I wasn't good at anymore. Well, relative in a relative sense. Well, I mean, when you think, when you grow up watching Arsenal games and you think you're the next Thierry Henry and you think you're going to be playing in the world <laughs> cup. And then you're like sitting on the bench at a small liberal arts college in North Carolina. It like, it's a really uh, disorienting, sort of moment but you know you realize that 
Louisiana is not necessarily a hotbed of soccer talent against which to measure your skills on a on a global scale. Um, so it was it was humbling, but I bring it up because part of what happened when I was in college was that I had to sort of find a new way to understand who I was because mm-hmm. um, I didn't really know who I was outside of soccer. It was like again just the thing that it was all I cared about for so long. And in my sophomore year of college, I had an internship in New York City. And I went to this place called the New Eureka Poets Cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, a bunch of folks will, especially New York folks will be familiar with it, but it's this legendary poetry cafe. It's like a small room, but you walk in and there's a DJ and he's playing like old school hip hop. And you have people from all over the world who are in there and everybody's dancing and everybody's like laughing. Everybody's having, you know, there are drinks. And then the, uh, the host gets on stage and it was this woman, Mo Brown, incredible poet, incredible person who was the host of the New Eureka Poets Cafe for the long, longest time. And this was, I went there when I was like a disillusioned English major. Mm. Um, so I was like an English major at Davidson. And, you know, we were reading the canon, we were reading Keats and Yeats and Frost and Whitman and all, you know, all those cats. And and it was, it was hard for me to connect with that when I was 18. But I went into this space and, and it was, it transformed my understanding of what literature could be. And I remember the first poem I ever heard was by a woman who had cerebral palsy. And she got on stage and did this poem about living with this condition. And in like three minutes, the way I thought about an entire demographic of people completely changed. Like I left that room never thinking about disability the same way again. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. Um, and so I left and I went back to school that next semester. And I told all my friends, you know, I'm friends with all the kids on the soccer team. And, you know, we were like playing FIFA in preseason. And I was like, guys, I'm going to be a poet. And everybody turned around, I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be a poet. And so I like started a poetry group at Davidson. And we did, our, you know, we like cosplayed Dead Poet Society and like went up to the attic of the main academic building. We like wrote poems and read poems and performed our poems and workshop poems. And, and it was amazing. And, and I'm very, I'm always grateful to Davidson because it's a, there's another version of this where I'm like a disillusioned student athlete at some big school and I don't have the time or space or encouragement to like start a poetry club, you know, Hmm. but I feel really grateful that that happened. And, and yeah, so that, you know, that's, that's kind of how I fell into it. And I started going to a lot of poetry slams in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is about 20 minutes away from Davidson. I just loved it. I just fell in love with it. I think it also was the perfect entry point for me into thinking of myself as a writer because poetry slams are competitive and I was an athlete my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a sort of a good transition for me to take the competitive energy of soccer and to say, this is another space in which it can sort of manifest itself. Once you started writing poetry, were you already grappling with the trauma of being uprooted and, and Katrina and all that? Did that make its way into your poetry from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was, uh, I was thinking a lot about displacement in all of its forms. I think a lot about identity, a lot of think, thinking a lot about how we identify ourselves in the world. And it was such a generative, like an intellectually and creatively generative time in my life. The poems were also very bad. Like <laughs> sometimes I like randomly stumble across one on YouTube. Um, and it is like, it is painful. I don't encourage anybody to go Google like 2009 poems of Clint Smith on YouTube. It is, uh, I hope most of them have been taken down. But my friend, Saf- <laughs> I, I, my friend Safiel Hilo, incredible poet, 
she has this way of reframing it. She's like, because I think a lot of artists feel this way, right? Like you create something when you're, you know, you know, for me, I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, and you can look back, you know, now somebody in my 30s and be like, man, that was like my politics were like not great. My the the language was like kind of whack, like the poems were just not good. Um, and I think you can look back and cringe at it. But another way that Safi always talks about, she's like, or you can think about it as these sort of time capsules that capture these moments in time of like who you were at these different times in your life. Uh, and what a what a what a thing to be grateful for, right? That you can sort of look back through your poems and trace who you were at different times in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more generous rendering of it than being like, damn, those poems are trash. But yeah, I, I you know, they were, I wrote a lot of bad poems and, and it's fun, you know, it's college. It's funny. Cause you know, there's like the Thursday night open mic and you got people who like come up and play the ukulele and people who like, you know, sing or people who it's like a weird sort of monthly talent show that we had. Um, so I would go up there and do my poems and, I remember, especially my senior year, like all my friends would on Thursday night would would be drinking in the union and then they'd come to the Thursday night open mic and everybody's plastered. And so they come and like listen to me do my like sad poems about displacement and identity. And they're like, yeah, Clint. Woo. And so it gave me a false sense of how good those poems were. But I appreciate the homies for 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 holding it down. Yeah, maybe you need that when you're when you're starting out and you're writing, you know, your writing's not quite there, but you have the you have the encouragement, you have the backing to to push on with it. I mean, I was up there. I thought I was Neruda, right? <laughs> I was just like, oh, damn, like, I am good at this. Like, my, like they are they are really hyped. Like, I am, man, this is my destiny. Um, so, yeah, so who knows if if it hadn't been for my my drunken Thursday night, uh, <laughs> you know, roommates coming and, and supporting me, who knows where where it would be. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Were you at that point already thinking about this sort of difference between your experience maybe and the public memory that you end up writing so much about and your book is about? Like, did you, even in the experience of, let's say, Katrina, were you seeing narratives that were being told about it that felt to you like, that's not what I experienced. What the public memory is becoming is not what I personally went through. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that became clear to me was that there was like a sort of larger aggregated story of Katrina that was happening in ways that did not disentangle and disaggregate the specific nuances and complexities of how different people experience Katrina in different ways, right? And and I think for me, that's something that, you know, I th I think a lot about in my work now. I thought a lot about in this cover story. I thought a lot about in my book. I think a lot about it, you know, in my life all the time. It's like, what does it mean to be precise and to be specific and to lean into the complexities of of a moment or a piece of history or an event that doesn't attempt to paint it with a sort of single stroke or tell it as if there is a single story, but to recognize that many different people experience that same event in so many different ways. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, so Katrina, you can't tell the story of Katrina without talking about the different ways people experienced it across race, across class, across geography, right? Like what Katrina looked like in uptown New Orleans is very different than what it looked like in the ninth war, what it looked like when you were coming from a high income household, obviously what it looks like very different than what it looks like coming from a low income household. Part of what I wanted to do, and, and this, it wasn't immediate, but I think over the course of, you know, the, the following years is trying to ensure that like my story of Katrina is my story. There are things that are similar to other people's stories, but like I wanted to become very careful so that no one would ever think that I was suggesting that like my story was a reflection of like all peoples in New Orleans or all black folks in New Orleans, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember for the longest time, I was like the, the first person or the only person people knew from New Orleans in the like immediate aftermath of Katrina. And when I wrote about it, I remember I had a teacher, my freshman year of college, Gil Holland. He's a delightful guy. He looks, looks like Santa Claus. And I remember writing early essays about Katrina in like, you know, the sort of freshman 101 writing class. Mm -hmm. I think I wrote a, a first essay that tr used like we as the sort of pronoun throughout the piece. You know, my goal was to create a sort of like all-encompassing sense of collectivity, like, you know, what we experienced in New Orleans. And he was like, this is a great essay. Also, you're using we here, but is the experience that you're describing of a we or is it of, of you, right? Like, and what does it mean to be specific to telling the story of how you experience the thing? And, and so now I think, and it was, it's such simple advice, but, you know, I think about when I was writing How the Words Pass, how clear I wanted to be for the reader that like these are not meant to be definitive portraits of any of these places, but instead are meant to be reflections of how I experience these places through my own eyes. And I think part of that too is, you know, further uh, amplified by the fact that I was trained in graduate school by sociologists, right? So like, I think about somebody like Matt Desmond, who wrote Evicted, who was on my dissertation committee. Mm. Wow. And, you know, part of what sociologists think about all the time is this idea of positionality, right? So like, how can you think about all the ways that different parts of your identity shape how your subjects, how your research, how the way that you move through a space, how that impacts the way you understand a story and the way people are communicating about that story with you. So, you know, somebody like Matt, 
thinks very deeply about, you know, how, what it means for him to be a white man engaging in these stories that are disproportionately about, not singularly, but uh, largely about poor black people. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, when I'm moving through, walking through plantations and prisons and all these places that have to do with the history of slavery, it's impossible for me to think about how people in that space are engaging with me without understanding that that is very specific to me being the descendant of enslaved people, being a straight black Southern man, you know, who wears glasses or who has this sort of education. And so the specificity of the I and the specificity of understanding how your life and identity and story animate the way you engage in a space and tell a story and understand things that are happening to you uh, I think it's felt really important for me for a long time now. It's interesting. It comes through in two almost sort of inverse ways in your book. There's, I'm thinking of the really obvious one is in Blandford Cemetery, this Confederate cemetery where there's, mm. you know, basically a Sons of Confederate Veterans event. And you go and you write about how you can sort of feel the way people are looking at you and wondering why, why is he here? But then also in the other, What's the name of the um, the plantation that you visit in Louisiana? Whitney? Whitney Plantation? Whitney, yeah. And there you ask the question, well, how is this experienced by white people who, co- who show up here? Like, if I wasn't here, how would they be experiencing this situation? And would it be different than me? And I'm interested in when you're in those moments, is that something that you sit down and reflect on later? Or is that something that is sort of intensely in your mind as you're making the observations, as you're taking down what's going on around you? Yeah, I think it depends on the place. Um, you know, so for the Blanford Cemetery, it's interesting because <laughs> the story of how I ended up there, like I didn't write a book proposal and say like, I'm going to go spend the day with the Sons of Confederate Veterans at a Confederate cemetery. I like my wife would not have let me like get that out the out the door. <laughs> there was no no chance. Um, and this is the cool thing about writing narrative nonfiction is that like, and especially a book like this, where you think you're going to go one place and then the story sort of points you in a different direction. So I thought I was going to write a chapter on Civil War battlefields. So I went to Petersburg, Virginia, and I was uh, spending time at this Civil War battlefield memorial site that was sort of commemorating the siege of Petersburg, which is this huge siege at the end of the Civil War. It was kind of like the last stand in many ways. And and so I was there and I was, you know, going around and having conversations with the tour guides and the docents and the park rangers and some visitors as I was doing at all these different places for like four years. And I remember I was telling the park ranger about my project and he was like, oh, you should go to that Confederate cemetery down the road. And you know, it, it's funny because there's like, it's almost like how the, like in some movies, they have like the angel who appears on one shoulder and the devil who appears on the other shoulder. It's like that, but there's like writer Clint and then like regular Clint. And so writer Clint is like, you got to go to the Confederate cemetery, Clint. Yet this is, this is where the story is pointing to you. Regular Clint is like, you absolutely should not go to this Confederate cemetery. What are you thinking? What's wrong with you? Um, and, but writer Clint in that moment wins out because it's like, I, I got, this is where the story's taking me. I got to go. And so I went and it was this, you know, bizarre experience in, in so many ways. And I remember going on the tour of the church at the center of the Blanford Cemetery. For context for folks, the Blanford Cemetery is one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country where the remains of 30,000 Confederate soldiers 
are buried. And so I went and I got this tour of the chapel in the cemetery. And I was the only person on the tour initially. And then another couple came and joined. Um, tour guide was a white guy. Other couples were everybody in this place was was white. I I got the sense <laughs> that there are not a lot of black people who come uh, come into this space and are like, let me get a tour of this Confederate cemetery. In they seem to confirm um, that too. I feel like the the tour guides were sort of like, not all people are comfortable coming here. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I tried to get a rough number. I was like, what percentage of people do you think are are black? And they were like, maybe ten percent. I was like, I think that's a vast overestimate. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's like one out of nine. I think it's probably one. I'm maybe the first in a few years. Um, but but I remember like getting that tour and then this weird thing where it was like he was talking about like the windows and like how beautiful the windows were and where they were imported from and the Tiffany glass and the stained glass. And it was this hour long tour. And like the word Confederacy wasn't said once, like they didn't say anything about like what these windows were built to honor. Right. Like, I mean, the windows literally have written on them, like to honor our Confederate heroes who fought bravely in the war. Like, I mean, it says it verb, you know, verbatim basically. And so in, that's a moment to your point where I'm like, are they not saying this because I'm here? Like would the conversation or the way that they are talking about this space be different if I wasn't as a black man present? Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of thing where you always wonder, and I felt this, you know, you wonder the same thing at Whitney, you wonder the same thing at Monticello, you wonder the same thing at Angola. You're always like, what would the, how would this story be told if I wasn't here or if it was only white people present as is probably the case with the vast majority of the tours in these places. And I remember I went into the visitor center after, and I was talking to the woman who's the director of the site, you know, we were having a conversation. I was trying to get, you know, insight. It's like, you know, it's fascinating. I was on this tour and this is a site in which like, I mean, you look around and there's Confederate flags everywhere. I mean, like just ornamenting the ground mm -hmm. in, in every place you look and like nobody said, I was just so struck by the fact that nobody said the word or invoked it at all. And we're having this conversation. I'm trying to get some insight. And I look down to the left and there's a flyer for a Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And I like caught my eye and she saw me see it. And then she like put her hand on the table and like threw the, you know, like tried to flip the page over. And she was like, I don't know what this is. I don't, you know, I don't, who are these people? I've never, I don't know why they're doing it. I was like, ma'am, you're the director of the site. Of course, you know what's going on, you know? So that's another moment where it's like Ryder Clint's on one shoulder, regular Clint's on the other shoulder. And like Ryder Clint is like, you have to go to the Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. <laughs> and regular Clint is like, you're nuts. What are you talking about? Do not do that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, gratefully in many ways Ryder Clint wins out in these moments and so I came back for the Sons Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration I think it was like two or three weeks later and I felt it in that moment in every way right like I was yeah acutely cognizant of how conspicuous a presence I was as a writer you know I'm like standing in the back I'm like trying to take notes and everybody's like and this was also in a moment where like Trump is president, like the way that people are talking about media and journalism and reporters is like really intense. Uh, and so, you know, you got this black guy in the back who's like writing on his notepad, who like very clearly is not part of like what, what became clear when I showed up is that like this is a community of folks who know each other very well. And so like I'm very clearly an outsider to this in some ways sort of family reunion-esque thing, even though it's a public event. And it was jarring and it was strange. But it was also really clarifying 
because I think I learned that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence. It's a story that they're told. It's an heirloom that's passed down across generations. It's something where loyalty takes precedence over truth. I always remember a conversation I had with this guy, Jeff. And Jeff, you know, he had this salt and pepper goatee, this handlebar mustache, this long ponytail, this yeah, round belly, a biker vest with Confederate paraphernalia all over it. And we were having a conversation and he was telling me about how when he was a kid, his grandfather used to bring him to that uh, that cemetery and his grandfather and him would sit in this beautiful gazebo in the center of the cemetery. And his grandfather would pull out a banjo and like sing the old Dixie anthem. And they would uh, watch as the sun set behind the trees and the sky turned from uh, blue to orange to purple to black as fireflies sort of came out of the the forest and jump from one tombstone to the next as deer grazed around the the gravestones you know these really sentimental mm -hmm. memories and, and he would say how his grandfather told him these stories about how the men who were buried here they didn't fight a war for slavery they didn't fight a war uh to keep you know over racism or bondage like you know secession had nothing to do with uh, anti-blackness it you know this was about state sovereignty this was about states rights this was about protecting their community and their family from the war of northern invasion this you know all the sort of it's almost the you know lost cause greatest hits he was like well now i bring my granddaughters here and he was saying how he tells his granddaughters the same stories that his grandfather told him sings the same songs that his grandfather sang to him watches the same sun set over the same trees that his grandfather did with him and so what becomes clear for me in that moment is that like i can go to jeff and be like well jeff i know your granddad told you that secession had nothing to do with slavery or that the civil war had nothing to do with black people and that it was all about you know state sovereignty and state sanctity and you know community southern pride all this jazz and i could go in you know i could show him the declaration of the confederate secession and be like you know in 1861 a state like mississippi says our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery the greatest material interest in the world and so there's you know they weren't vague about why they were seceding they were very clear about it they wrote there's all sorts of contemporaneous primary source evidence that makes clear why slavery was the centerpiece of the confederate project yeah but for jeff if jeff is to accept that he would have to accept that his grandfather was lying to him and if he has to accept that his grandfather was lying to him, it threatens to disintegrate his relationship with this person that he loves deeply, who is in so many ways a sort of microcosm of a larger story that he's been told by other people that he loves. And so suddenly it's not this like inconvenient need to reassess history. It becomes like an existential crisis. Mm -hmm. Because if so many of the stories you've been told by the people you love are revealed to not be true, then your sense of identity, which is deeply entangled in those stories, which is deeply entangled in those relationships, is also called into question. That's a hard thing for a lot of people. And I think there's a version of this where like, I simply paint these people as two-dimensional caricatures of ignorance and evil and racism. And it's not to say that they don't carry bigoted, racist, dangerous views. But I think we have to take seriously the sort of underbelly of family and uh, identity and the human texture that sort of undergird so many of these beliefs that ultimately manifest themselves in these really dangerous and harmful ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I that I loved about the book because I grew up in the South. And what part? I grew up uh, in Atlanta, 
but my oh, okay. my whole extended family is from Alabama. Yeah. And so much of you know how people get educated about what happened, the Civil War, slavery, like of course there's what happens in schools and that's important, but so much of it is just part of the wallpaper like in Georgia, it's like Stone Mountain is right there. And so many it's kids, just there. Yeah. that's how they come to their beliefs about the Civil War is they go visit Stone Mountain, you know. Mm. But that's also, it's a harder thing to report on. It's a harder thing to like excavate. It feels like to me that it's just in the ether more than you can go into a school and say, this is being taught or that's being taught. So where did the idea originally come from to sort of look at place as a sort of anchor for memory yeah in 2017 i watched a bunch of confederate statues come down in new orleans uh statues of the pgt beauregard jefferson davis robert e lee and as i was watching those statues come down i was thinking about what it meant that i grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people and thinking about, well, what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson David Parkway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents still live on the street today, named after someone who owned 150 enslaved people. Because the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, which isn't to say that you just take down a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee and suddenly you erase the racial wealth gap. But it does help us recognize the, uh, the ecosystem of ideas and, and stories and narratives that help give us a sense of what's happened throughout American history, what's happened in the specific history of a, of a community, and how certain communities and demographics of people have been disproportionately and intentionally harmed throughout this history. I grew up in a city that was once the busiest slave market in the country and like wasn't cognizant of that, even though so many of us here are the descendants of people who were brought here, you know, down the Mississippi River um, during the domestic slave trade. And so I think it became clear that my own understanding of slavery, both in a on a sort of societal level, but also on a personal level, um, in terms of my own lineage, was not at all commensurate with the sort of impact and legacy that it had both on my family and on this country. And so I'm generally drawn to stories, especially in the context of nonfiction, of things I don't know a lot about and want to learn more about. And especially for a book, like for me, if you're going to spend four years or something on a book, it's got to be worth it to you, even if nobody else but your mom reads it, you know? And so for me, it's it's one of those things where I was like, all right, well, I, this feels both deeply, deeply important on a personal level in terms of like excavating my own history and my own lineage. And this feels deeply personal in this moment in our country's history where it is being increasingly revealed how central slavery was to all that we are. And, you know, I'd been spending time with, you know, books like with uh, historians like Annette Gordon-Reed and Dinah Ramey Berry and Vincent Brown and Walter Johnson and Kevin Levin and all these different historians whose work had helped me f more deeply understand the country and the state and the city that I lived in. And I kept thinking about, well, what would it look like 
to take, you know, Annette Gordon reads the Hemingses of Monticello and to go to that place, to go to Monticello, to add a different dimension to the story, right? Not only are we going to excavate and think about the history, but what would it look like to think about how people are making sense of and processing the history today? That's kind of the way that it came to be. But also, you know, it's for me, sometimes a story begins in, or a project will begin in one genre and then transition to another. Yeah. So I didn't actually like think that this would be uh, a book of narrative nonfiction at the beginning. Like it didn't come into the world as a fully formed thing uh, at all. I, at first I thought it would be a collection of poetry. My first book that came out in 2016 was a book of poems, Counting Descent. And I thought, you know, this is when 2017, where I like started having the ideas for this project. I thought that my, this book would be a collection of poems in which the conceit was that each poem would be about a different monument in New Orleans and my relationship to it. And so thinking about like, what's my relationship to this monument? What's the history of this monument? And that's what the poetry collection is going to be. Hmm. And so, as I kind of said before, like poetry for me is both the creation of art, but also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking. And so I was writing all these poems for like a year about all these different monuments in New Orleans. And it became clear through that process that some of the questions I was wrestling with needed a little bit more space than what poems could provide in that moment. So then I started writing these sort of short lyric essays. Uh, and then I started writing these sort of longer comparative essays of different places I had visited. And then I started going to these places and writing sort of extended reflections and meditations on my trip to them. And I remember I went to Monticello and I always, I always charm out for this because Tanasi uh, has become like a friend and a mentor and like, uh, you know, big, big brother in so many ways. And I remember we connected back then and, and I was telling him about my trip to Monticello and like what I was trying to do. And he was like, you got to go talk to people. Mm. And I was like, I don't do that, man. You do that. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> like, what are you talking? I'm not going to go talk. Like, I'm a, I was like, I'm a poet, you know, I'm going to go and like, think about the, the place and the space. And like, do he was like, you got to talk to people, Clint. Um, and I think it's interesting because after the book came out, there was this like very tidy narrative where it was like, poet and journalist Clint Smith goes to these sites and, and does the, and I was like, and I remember when these reviews were coming out, I was like, who's the journalist? Like, who are they talking about? Like journal, like what is, <laughs> who's this reporter they keep talking about? Cause I never, that was not at all like a part of my identity. I mean, I was a poet. I was a, you know, graduate student in sociology of education. I was getting my PhD, like, but, but like as a researcher, but I never thought about myself as a journalist. And so the sort of idea of like the man on the street interview was like deeply, unsettling to me. I was like, you want me to go up to a stranger on a plantation and just like ask people questions? That sounds wild. Um, How did it feel when you did it? The first time you did it? Oh, I was scared as hell, man. I'm a pretty introverted person, but like I have to like really psych myself, especially when I first started. Um, I had to really like psych myself up for it. I remember, so we were on this tour, this Monticello tour, and Monticello has a range of these different tours. And it was the slavery at Monticello tour, which outlines specifically the relationship that Jefferson had to slavery and the role that slavery played in Monticello. And the reason I wanted to go to Monticello was because I think that Jefferson is in so many ways a microcosm of the story of America in the sense that America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined and has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over there and one over here. It's that they're both deeply entangled in one another. And Jefferson, similarly, is someone who 
I think embodies the the cognitive dissonance of this country. He's someone who, you know, wrote the one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. Mm -hmm. He's someone who wrote uh, in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that uh, he suspects that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. And so, you know, for me, I wanted to go to a place that's perhaps the most famous plantation in the world in terms of its significance, in terms of the person who owned that land. And I remember this, we have this guy, David Thorson, who's the tour guide. And David, this older white guy, um, very professorial, had these very well-ironed khaki pants and this, you know, Oxford short sleeve shirt and this wide brim brown hat uh, that sort of cast a shadow over his eyes. And he was telling us in the group a lot about some of what I just outlined now, right? You know, he's talking about all the things Jefferson said about slavery in his letters, all the things Jefferson said about slavery in the notes on the state of Virginia, all the things that, you know, things that I hadn't encountered before. And I was kind of blown away by this guy who was talking about Jefferson in ways that I had never heard Jefferson spoken about, like in my own education. And, you know, now we're in 2022 and that story, at least in many spaces, feels more commonplace. But I think, you know, in even even just five years ago, like that wasn't, I think we can forget how that was not necessarily the story we're hearing about Jefferson at all. Yeah. And I remember watching these two women, Donna and Grace, and I remember watching them during the tour. There were about 12 of us on the tour and they were the two older white women. And as David was talking about Jefferson and all these things he said about slavery and enslaved people, their like faces went white, their mouths hung agape. They were like, whispering to each other they were clearly very unsettled by what they were hearing and so i was like all right i'm gonna go talk to these people and so i went and said you know hi i'm, I'm clint i'd love to hear more about how you processed you know some of the information in this presentation and donna just turned around she looked at me she was just like man he really took the shine off the guy she was like i had no idea jefferson owned slaves i had no idea what monticello was a plantation mind you these are folks who bought plane tickets rented cars got hotel rooms who came to this site as like a pilgrimage to see the home of one of the founding fathers and yet had no idea that he was an enslaver. And that was such an important moment for me because that sort of, I, I'm, I've been struck by how many people write to me who identify with Donna and Grace. And they're like, oh, I see myself in those women or I see mm -hmm. my mother in those women or, or people who don't see themselves in those folks and are like, oh, I forget that those people still are around, right? Yeah. Like I don't, you know, I think some of us, you know, especially who are drawn to this work can take for granted how commonly known some of this information is, like things that we think about all the time in, in some circles, especially as writers and people who, who think about and study history. But it's important to remember that for millions and millions and millions of people in this country, like these are not conversations that they are having these are not parts of the history that they're exposed to and that so though that conversation with donna and grace you know all these years ago now was for me it helped me recognize what the book needed to be for a, me to write a book that is attempting to capture the complexity and the heterogeneity of memory i have to include the stories and perspectives and memories of other people mm -hmm. and that was you know in so many ways this book taught me how to be a journalist because it, for me, after that, I was like, oh, like this is a completely different book when you are talking to other people and including their stories in this. Because, you know, then somebody says something that serves as a catalyst for like 
a whole different direction of uh, research that you hadn't previously considered. And I mean, it just made the book into something so much more fascinating and dynamic, I think, because it was not, I didn't want the book to be about me necessarily. Like I wanted it to be about how we as a country, how these different places tell the story or don't tell the story of their relationship to American slavery. And the thing that I always say to young writers when I go talk to high schools or college classes and stuff is that like, I wrote probably 40,000 words of this book before I got to what the first word ultimately was mm. in terms of like all the poems and all the essays and all the versions of what I thought would be the first chapter. I wrote probably like three versions of what I thought were the first chapter of the book before I got to Monticello and was like, oh, this is actually what I'm trying to do. I think that's important to say to young writers because sometimes I think they see books and they're like, oh, well, if I don't sit down and write the way that this book that I read looks like, then I'm not a writer or I'm not meant to be doing this. But I, you know, as somebody who played, you know, sports my whole life, I always think about it the same way I think of sports. Like you don't go show up to a soccer game and just score a hat trick. Like out of nowhere, you put in hours of work on the practice field so that when you go in front of people, you are, they are seeing a refined finished product that is the culmination and manifestation of the work you put in that nobody else sees. Yeah. And I think of writing is the same thing, right? Like you don't just show up to the page and immediately write the thing that's going to be published in the book. There's a lot of writing and throat clearing and excavating that has to be done in order to get to the thing that ultimately will be seen by other people. But I think it's important for us not to think about that as a waste of time. It's, it's practice. Well, that, that relates to another question, which maybe connects up with the Germany story that you just did, which is you were also a teacher. So when you sort of set out to write this book or this, this article about where you visited Germany and you're looking at Holocaust memorials, there's a sort of way to approach it where you're ingesting all the information, becoming an expert, and then teaching people. And then there's another way to do it in which we are sort of experiencing your journey of learning about it. And I'm interested in how you think of those two things and whether it's both, whether it's one in your approach to these types of stories. I certainly think that it's much more of the latter. For me, you know, when I think about the book and the book and the cover story are like deeply intertwined in terms of their subject matter and sensibility, but I didn't want to write a book or, or an article that felt didactic, that felt condescending, that felt like a polemic. You know, before I said that part of how I pick subjects is that I pick things that I feel like I don't know a lot about that I want to learn more about. And for me, I think a certain level of transparency around the fact that I am entering this piece not as an expert on this subject matter, but as someone who is really interested in in learning about it and spending time with it. And that like the process, the, the, the most generative piece of all of it is like the process of learning while working on the book. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, when I was writing How the Word Has Passed, it's both a, a desire to be transparent about my own sort of intellectual journey. And what I think it does is allows the reader to enter the story in a way that there's a different sense of openness or a different sense of uh, this feeling like, oh, I don't, I'm not being 
talked down to or I'm not it's not being suggested to me that like I should have known this my whole life that like we you know we all should have come out the womb like knowing the you know the dynamics of slavery in 1861 Georgia right like it's for me it's like oh I recognize that I don't understand the history of this institution in any way that's commensurate with the legacy that is left on this country do you reader want to join me on this journey to figure that out like let's go together so I think there's that sort of choice I think also one of the things I wanted to do was write a book of history that felt like a novel. And in doing so, I sort of made myself the protagonist. And like the best protagonists reveal their interiority and their sense of, and like what they are processing, what they're making sense of, what they're confused of, how how different things that they're experiencing impact mm. them. And so I didn't want to do this thing where I was going to these different places and experiencing these like horrific or shocking or traumatic or remarkable moments and not offering space in which I was outlining how they impacted me, right? So like when I go and stand in a slave cabin at the Whitney Plantation and stand there and think about like the history that happened there, I didn't want to just say like, now I'm in a slave cabin. This is the history of slave cabins. This is the history of Whitney. This is like, for me, part of it is saying like, whoa, like I'm in, a, in the same space that enslaved people once lived in and slept in. I am standing in this space and thinking about what it would mean to put my children to bed and to wake up and realize that they're gone and that somebody had taken them. I didn't know if I would ever see them again. And then you have this moment when you're standing in this cabin and you realize that this is the omnipresent threat that millions of enslaved people lived under every single day of their lives, that at any moment you could be taken from your spouse, your children, your parents, the people you love. And for me, putting your body in the place where history happened magnifies that experience. It's a sort of radical, physical empathy. So I say all that because I want to offer the reader moments in which I'm saying like, wow, that was really disturbing. So that they can then, it almost, I think, gives them permission to have their own emotional responses, which maybe are similar to mine and maybe are different, you know, based on the different facets of their own history, their own background. And I think in the Germany piece too, you know, that's, that's interesting because I was going in, like, I am not Jewish. I am not the descendant of people who were impacted by the Holocaust. My relationship to that history is very distinct than my relationship to the history of slavery. And inevitably, and I think people who've read the piece can see, inevitably the way that I am making sense of these monuments and memorials is entangled in the way I make sense of the lack of monuments and memorials that exist in the United States. The way that, you know, one of the most interesting things was like so many of the Jewish folks I spent time with in Germany, they would bring up to me hmm. the comparisons, right? Like it was, that, it was, you know, standing next to uh, Barbara Steiner, this histor Jewish historian in Berlin, in front of, you know, her former home where there are these stumbling stones on the ground and the stumbling stones are these brass plates that are placed in front of the homes of people who were 
persecuted and murdered by the Nazis. Uh, and it's the, often their last place of residence or their last place of worship. And so, you know, you'll be walking down the street and you'll see uh, two stumbling stones in front of a home. And then you walk a little further down, you see four. You walk a little further down, you see six. You walk a little further down, you see 12. And the thing about them is that they have the birth date, deportation date, death date of the people who were taken from these homes. And so you can look down and you can tell who are the children, who are the parents, who are the grandparents. You can imagine like who was the cousin who maybe lived with them, who was the neighbor who came over for Shabbat, who was the, you know, it, it, you can construct entire stories of the people who who were here. That, and it's so powerful, so intimate, um, created by this artist, Gunter Demnig in 1996. And now there's 90,000 of them in 30 different countries across Europe. And I, I just was so struck by them walking down the streets of Berlin. And Barbara Steiner, the historian, she would say, she, I remember I was looking at these two stumbling stones in front of her old home. And she said to me, she was like, can you imagine what it would be like if they had stumbling stones in New Orleans, where you're from, to commemorate the history of slavery, you know, in front of the homes where enslaved people lived. And it was, and I had this moment, you know, she brought it up to me, given, and she knew that I was, you know, from New Orleans. She knew that I'm the descendant of enslaved people. And she was like, the streets would be packed. And she's right, right? Like, I mean, if you had the equivalent of Stolperstein in New Orleans, entire streets would be paved in brass stones. You know, I mean, you, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing them. Mm. And so what's interesting, and this goes back to our conversation about uh, like how the role that identity um, and the self and the I plays in a story. Um, the way that my, those folks that I'm interviewing and having conversations within these spaces are engaging me is distinct to the fact or unique to the fact that I am who I am, right? Like if you go and have that same conversation with Barbara Steiner, like the dynamic and contours of that conversation, even if you're talking about the same thing, look different. Yeah. And so it's it's hard for me to imagine not including like things that I don't know or things that are surprising to me or things that are shocking. So like in that moment, I, I write specifically, like that was really, start, like that's, I was really startled by that revelation or really start, you know, or, I remember when I was at the House of the Vansi Conference, where the the place where the Nazi leaders uh, got together and shaped the contours of the final solution. Uh, and it's this like beautiful, idyllic, and also haunting place, uh, sort of right outside of Berlin. And I remember the director of the center told me the story about how a woman who was the granddaughter of one of the men, Martin Luther, who was one of the top Nazi leaders who was planning the final solution, walked through that space and left a note in the guest book about how much that space had impacted her. And that was just bananas to me. I was just like the, the granddaughter, like I just, I was like, what does it mean for the granddaughter of one of the top Nazi leaders to walk through this space and to think about what her grandfather had done and constructed. And so in that moment, I don't, as a writer, I don't know how to, include that information without including how remarkable a piece of information that was to me and, yeah. and different writers have different styles. It's not, you know, and, and from, but for me with these sorts of stories, I don't know, it, it just feels important not to pretend as if like, I always knew this information or not to pretend as if 
I'm just sort of receiving this information and then sharing it on the page without having my own sort of reaction to it. And there's there's a balance, right? Because you don't want to stylistically like every time you encounter a piece of information, you don't, you don't want to say like, whoa, that was wild, you know, like, right. But I do think for me, a certain level of, I guess it's like vulnerability. Also, the thing about journalists and writers is that sometimes people look at us as people who like just know all, have all the answers and just like know all the stuff. And I and that's not true. And it's certainly not true for me. Like I'm, I'm going and doing these projects because I'm, because I don't know. Because I want to, I want to understand more about how the Holocaust remembered. I want to understand more about how slavery is remembered. I want to spend time understanding a set of perspectives that I've not encountered before. Mm. And the experience of writing it is a journey of learning for me. And so it feels only fair to make sure that that's communicated through the piece itself. You know, this Germany story, it could be a chapter in the book almost. It could be appended into the book. But then... You know, it's funny, there was this, I don't know if you saw yesterday, there was the there were these arrests of this like right-wing plot to overthrow the government in Germany. Mm. I mean, these were almost like the ultimate lost causers, you know? They were like trying to return to like pre-World War One Germany, it's like that. Mm -hmm. But then it made me think like, does it bother you? Does it get to you that this is not a linear process? Like that you you can go right about it and then you can see that it circles back, that there's a reactionary backlash sometimes. Like this... This will never be solved in our lifetimes, it feels like, this idea of remembering slavery and, and trying to properly recognize it. Does that discourage you? I don't know that it discourages me in the sense that when I set out to write about these things, it is not with the intention that the writing will change people's minds. Like, I just think that that's a really, it's just something that you don't, you don't have any control over that. Right. Like you don't I think if you are basing the success of your work and something you've written off of how many people are changed by it or like denazified by it or like, oh, I used to be racist and now I'm not. Or like I, you know, brought this to my racist grandma and we had a conversation and, and now, we, you know, and 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 look, to be clear, like I, I've gotten emails from people who are like, I you know, I read your book and I shared it with my grandparents or I shared it with my parents and we never talked about these things before. And your book opened up a new way for us to enter this conversation that previously felt impossible. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And that's deeply meaningful to me. And I am blown away and immensely grateful for the ways that this book has moved through the world in ways that I could have simply never imagined. But if your notion of like the success of a project is tied to a set of external factors and realities like that that are not in your control. I think it'll, I think it'll drive you crazy. Like when I was writing the book, you know, black writers get asked all, all the time about like who's the audience for your book, like who are you writing it for, and and the truth is like I wrote How the Word Is Passed for a sixteen year old version of me, mm. right? I wrote the sort of book that I felt like I needed when I was in my high school American history class that would have helped give me the language the toolkit, the information, the history, the perspectives that I needed to make sense of what it meant to be like a 15, 16 year old black kid growing up in New Orleans, in Louisiana, in America, um, and, and specifically in the context of the book. And, and this, the cover story, you know, is, is obviously very much in conversation with the book and has been a sort of catalyst to a host of other interest around public memory that I hope to continue to pursue in, in the years to come. But it's, but still when I'm writing that story, it's, 
it's for me first and foremost. Like it's for it's because I I learned about the Holocaust. I think in ways that are similar to how many American kids do. Like I read Anne Frank's Diary. I read Night. I read Number of the Stars when I was really young. I read, you know, we you know, there are these all these books for for kids, um, really important books about the Holocaust that try to give you a sense, like an intimate sense of what it was. And so it's not that I didn't know anything about the Holocaust or anything like that. I probably spent more time reading books about the Holocaust in school than I did about slavery. Yeah. But there is no substitute for like standing on a train platform where Jewish people were once deported from. There's nothing like standing in the room where 15 SS leaders constructed the documents that would lead to the final solution. There is no, I, I remember, you know, one of the places I go for the cover story is Dachau. I've been to a lot of places that carry a history of death and slaughter and murder. I've been in, I've been in plantations. I've been you know, in execution chambers. I've been... Uh, sat on electric chairs. I've been on death row, you know, all these different places, but I have never experienced anything like what I experienced walking through the gas chamber in Dachau. I mean, it, it is like there's reading, there's reading books about the Holocaust and then there's that. And that is something that I hope to continue doing for the rest of my life is like putting my body where these things happen because it just, it completely transforms your understanding of what it was. Like, I will never think about the Holocaust in the same way again, after Dachau, after Sachsenhausen, after all these different places that I, that I visited. I'd go to these places because it feels important to do for me as, a, as an act of individual remembrance. I hope that when people read it, they are moved to think about memory in new ways, moved to go, you know, maybe to some of the places I visited either in the cover story or in the book, but also a host of, of other places that have relationships to these parts of history. You know, some of the most meaningful messages I get are from people not who read the books or read the cover story and, and then go to the places that I went who like, you know, I got a message even just the other day from someone who said there was a, cemetery that's like half a mile down the road from where they live that they passed every day on the way to work and they never stopped to see like what it what it was and they stopped and it was like a burial site of formerly enslaved people and mm. and you know they said part of what my writing had done was help them think about putting your body in that space and and remembering in a different sort of way and, and you know again i'm i'm wary of setting out to write something that makes people do anything. There's so many things that happen. It's not up to us. Yeah. It's not up to us. And so for me, the, the writing and the projects are born from a deeply personal space and a desire for me to more effectively understand in the context of my recent work, to understand how we remember and to understand what we remember and what we don't. And I do that for myself. And the hope is that other people will read it and think about memory in new ways also. The funny thing about um, saying that you're writing for young Clint is that I'm just imagining here that if you spoke to young Clint, 
the type of your writing that he might say, oh, yeah, that'll be me, is your writing about soccer. <laughs> I know. He's going to be like, man, is this a, are you writing about Henri? <laughs> like, is this, if it's not about Arsenal, I don't want to see it. Yeah, that's also true. That's also true. Do you view that as part and parcel? Is it all the same thing? Or do you feel like you have this kind of, I have another thing where I am actually somewhat of an expert. And, uh, and this is my thing where I could just kind of cut loose in a more fun way. I mean, if we want to like dig deep with it in terms of memory and history, I think there's a version of this. It's not even a version. I think it's maybe it's not even digging that deep. I think my wife would be like, it's pretty clear. Um, <laughs> she she would say like so much of why I love writing about soccer is because of the nostalgia. Mm. And it's it is this thing that like, I mean, ultimately, I just love the game. Like, I love the game. And it is the thing that, you know, brought me the most joy as a kid. It's also the thing that like, it takes me out of my own head. Like as someone who lives in their head, I think the thing about soccer is that it, it just like you know, like watching Arsenal, you know, my favorite team, watching the U.S. national team, or watch, you know, just watch or watching any game. There is a, pro- a nostalgic value because it like also brings me back to like eleven year old Clint, who when a time when it was just like nothing else mattered but the ball at your feet, and like that would, and it was such a. You look back, and you're like, oh man, that's such a simple time. So there is probably a part of it that like allows me to hold on to that a little bit more than I otherwise would have. I just love, I love, I loved and love soccer. I loved it as a kid in part because I loved the game and also because I imagined a trajectory in which I would be just like the people I saw on TV. And so I think there's a version where it's like, oh, we would write, I'm writing about soccer to remember that feeling, like the the feeling of when everything felt possible um, in terms of like what, where the game could take me. And what's true is that the game has taken, like nothing that has happened in my writing life would ever have been possible without soccer. Hmm. Nothing would never have been possible without my relation, like the intensity of my relationship to it. Like part of what I bring to my life as a writer is like the level of intensity that I brought to my life as like an athlete as a kid. I mean, if you go ask my parents, I was just at home with them for Thanksgiving they were both incredibly happy that I found something that I was so passionate about, but also like, man, you need to come inside <laughs> and do your homework and stop like kicking the ball against my house outside. <laughs> Cause like, that's the first thing I did, you know, I, every day I'd like, I'd be outside and I'd be like dribbling through cones. I'd be kicking the ball against the side of the house. I'd be juggling. I'd be, you know, you know, cause, and I, I think when I transitioned to writing in many ways, I just transferred that energy to writing and sort of dedicated myself to the craft of writing in the way that I had once, you know, as a kid in the first half of my life, dedicated myself to the craft of Jogo Benito and football. <laughs> but yeah, it also is this thing, you know, there's a, I was an, an academic, uh, you know, I was a PhD student for six years. And one of the things that I was nervous about is like, you know, you're on this trajectory and they're training you to be a junior professor and to be on tenure track and all that. But I, one of the things about academia is that it's so disciplined oriented. Yeah. And so I, I think what I was nervous about was that like this thing that I care a lot about would be the defining feature of my professional life in ways that made me nervous because I cared a lot about these questions that I was exploring in graduate school, but I also cared a lot about a lot of things 
outside of graduate school. I cared about a lot about poetry. I cared a lot about, you know, plays. I cared a lot about public memory. I cared a lot about soccer, you know. And one of the, you know, I started, I was doing a lot of freelancing in graduate school. And uh, Nick Thompson, who's now the CEO of The Atlantic, um, was the first person who reached out to me. And, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this part of like how I ended up here. But like, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to J school. I didn't, I was never a journalist until, you know, officially two years ago <laughs> when I started at The Atlantic. But I did a lot of Twitter threads is in grad school. Like I was like, and this was like when Twitter threads were like, a, it feels like they get lost now. I mean, like the algorithm's so different. Twitter's so different. I mean, it's, it's a very so different many. thing than it was. There's so many. I mean, it's just, but I remember being a graduate school student in like 2014. And this is, you know, at like right after Mike Brown. This is right after Eric Garner. This is when in the sort of midst and in, in some ways at the height at that time, the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was, you know, this PhD student who was reading, you know, in all these seminars and reading all these books that were helping me on a personal level make sense of what I was seeing around me. And so I just started doing these sort of threads about the books I was reading. And and I got like a lot of traction and, you know, I'd do these threads and I'd also editorialize a little bit. Mm. It was kind of like mini blogging. I mean, as the way that I can look back on it now, like I miss, I miss the blog era, but I was, you know, kind of micro blogging in on Twitter through these threads. And Nick Thompson, I think it was 2015, reached out to me. He was like, I loved your thread on on this thing. Like, would you want to write an essay about it for The New Yorker? And the funny thing is that like I'd been submitting poems to The New Yorker for like years. And every and just and like everyone was just getting rejected. Rejection after rejection. And I remember I got a rejection for some a group of poems like less than a week before he reached out. And I remember I got those and I was like, man, like fuck the New York. <laughs> Nobody cares about that place. I don't I don't even want to be in there. Like who cares about this elite, like old institution, this stuffy place? I don't care. And then I got that email from Nick Thompson and I was like, I absolutely want to write for the New Yorker. What are you talking about? <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, and so, but it was funny because like, I was like, oh man, like I got, you know, com- opportunity to write for the New Yorker through like a Twitter thread. So it was, you know, this, this story of, it's interesting we're in this moment now where like, you know, Twitter is becoming a very different thing, obviously. And this is, you know, we're now in the Elon Musk Twitter era. And, and my relationship to Twitter has been very different for, a f- yeah. I think, a few years now. Um, and I'm not ne- I'm nearly as active on it as I used to be. Um, but it is interesting because my trajectory as a as a writer and, you know, as a journalist is deeply entangled in that space. And I say that, that's all prelude to saying... I started writing different pieces for the New Yorker, and I remember I wrote a piece about Freddie Adu. Remember that piece? Because I remember when I was a kid, Freddie Adu. Yeah, he was. Uh, he's this fourteen-year-old sensation, but you know, he was going to save American soccer, and it didn't work out that way for all sorts of reasons. But I remember I wrote this piece, and then Nick was like, "You should write more about soccer." And I was like, "I can write about soccer, like it, you know, like." And and then I just started writing a lot of pieces for them about soccer. In two thousand eighteen, I like wrote for them. I covered the World Cup for them. Um, and it's just fun. And I bring up the academic piece because I made a decision not to take a tenure track academic job mm. because I wanted to be able to do things like this, right? I wanted to be able to write about soccer. I wanted to be able to, you know, I have a collection of poetry coming out in March. Like I wanted to be able to do that without, you know, if I was in a sociology department or an ed school or something, people might look at that you know, and be like, oh, that's cute. But like, where's your real work? And all of it is my real work, right? And so as someone who who really values interdisciplinary work who really values writing across genre who really values 
doing things in different mediums. Like I just finished this uh, Crash Course YouTube series that I did with um, for John and Hank Green's company called Crash Course Black American History. We spent like two years and we did all these episodes on like different parts of Black American history. I wouldn't have done that if I was in academia, right? Because it would have been like, oh, you're out here making YouTube videos. Where's your where your journal articles? You yeah, know, where's yeah. your where's your you know you know your book on Princeton University Press or whatever the case may be. So. I really wanted, I came to a point where I recognized that I needed a certain level of creative and intellectual freedom to, you know, write a story about, you know, 15,000 word story about the Holocaust and then to go cover the World Cup. And I feel really fortunate to be at a place like the Atlantic that allows me to move across different subject matters and explore and just follow my interests in, in ways that I just feel really lucky to do. Well, I'm grateful for it as a reader and uh, also for you taking all this time. Uh, you've been very generous with your time and uh, it's great having you on the show. Yeah, it's been really fun. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Clint Smith for that conversation. His book is called How the Word is Past. Our editor this week is Jackie Sajiko. Show notes by Susan Peterson. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.